Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Sandra Lynch on the topic Philosophy, Beauty and Godliness. This June 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Sandra Lynch is the Director of the University of Notre Dame Australia's School of Philosophy and Theology. very much for asking me here. Um, I wanted, um, the philosophy of beauty is an area of philosophy all of its own, um, aesthetics, and, and I, I'm not um, an expert in that area, so I want to explain to you why I'm talking about this topic. Um, my area is moral philosophy, and one of my um, jobs at the university is to improve the teaching of ethics. So I decided that I would try and do it in one school to start with and try and develop a model. So I went to the law school and I looked at the way in which they approach the teaching of ethics. And it's very compliance-oriented. So there are professional codes of conduct and you know, there are the laws and you learn the laws and you skill yourself up in the analysis of, of cases. So there's a great emphasis on developing knowledge and developing skills. And as I read through the information that I had in front of me, I thought, there's nothing here about the art of the practice. That, that you, can, you can have a knowledge of the skills that a profession <coughs> requires, and you can know what um, the ethical code of conduct requires of you. But you also need to be aware of your relation, with, that you're engaged in a relational profession. And the same can be said for the medical students, which I've, I want to move on to next. But when I looked at what was said about relational um, approaches, very, very little was said. There was, there was very little kind of exercise of a recognition that in fact what we're engaged in here if we're lawyers or doctors or nurses or teachers is an engagement with real people on the other side of the desk or uh, sitting in front of you. And it occurred to me that this, that while there was a great emphasis on the craft of the professions, there wasn't a great emphasis on the notion of art. And I, I thought really this is more like an art and that once you've developed the skills of the profession, and, and you have those at your fingertips, hopefully within the profession, the, the lawyer or the, the doctor becomes a master of, of the profession, in a sense, master the art of um, the legal profession or, or the art of medicine or what, whatever it happens to be. So I decided that what I needed to do was look at the notion of art. So that's what I did, and I, and, and I went to where you might expect uh, a philosopher to go. I had, had a look at Aristotle, and he said, well, really what, what you're talking about when you're talking about art by comparison with craft is a difference between an activity that engages the intellect, the art, and an activity of craft which is much more mechanical. Now, some philosophers disagree with him about that, but it, it fitted well with what I was trying to get at because I, I thought that what the students need to do, legal students and medical students, 
they need to engage their intellect in recognising that they're engaged in relations with the other. So then I looked elsewhere and I found the work of Jacques Maritain. And he has written a wonderful book which is called Intuition in Art and Poetry. And, and I felt really excited about that because it, it really, I think, captured what I was trying to say. So when he's talking about art, he's not talking about the production of a painting or the um, production of a composition of, of music or a piece of sculpture. He says, yes, that's art, but that's a productive um, activity. He's got a much broader notion in mind than, than that. And he says, really, art and poetry are very similar because what, what they're about is communication. And he, he says that what he's talking about is that intercommunication between the inner being of things and the inner being of the human self. So he's talking about communication between the inner beings, ourselves and what it is that we're looking at. And I'm thinking about what, we, what we're looking at in this, this case might be a work of art, but I'm also thinking it can also be a person. And he says that this is a kind of divination, that what we're looking at is um, a, a special kind of knowing, a special kind of communication. And Maritain says what's crucial here is the intellect or reason. But he hasn't got, he doesn't mean logical reason, logical thinking, mathematical thinking. When he talks about reason, he's talking about this in, enormously broad concept. He has in mind the use of your intellect to, to come to some understanding of your relationship with the world and your relationship with others. So he has this understanding that as creatures of God, when we engage in art, in that pro at the process of intercommunication that occurs, we're actually engaging with God. We're coming to understand ourselves as God's creatures. We're coming to understand our relationship with nature. So when he's, he's doing this, he's saying, okay, what I'm offering you is a very spiritual notion of art. It's an idea that's underlying the practice of actually creating a work of art. So as, as a painter or a dancer or, or a musician, you're engaged in, in producing a work of art. But he says that actually what you're doing is, if you're really alive to the possibility, is creating your relationship with God and recognising your relationship with God and that within art, there's this potential for great communication, deep communication. And that appealed to me because that's what I would like to, uh, or where I would like to get with my students. I'd like them to, to see their profession as um, a, pra a, a practice, an art that, that they're engaged in that allows for them to look at the other, their client or their patient in a different way. And Maritain says, think about the way in which you look at art. He even says, think about the way in which you look at nature. And take that way of looking to looking at others. 
So look into the eyes of the other person as you would look at a work of art. And his argument is that you, you get a deep understanding, a deep knowing. And his argument is that there's great um, pleasure and beauty in that kind of knowing of, of the other. It, it, it's a, this is a very sort of theoretical notion of, of art. But I think that what he's trying to say is that not, not all artists are engaged in this kind of, um, of enterprise. You know, some artists produce um, material that we think is disgusting and, or, or ludicrous. So he's not saying that all artists do this, but he's saying that there's the potential for artists to engage in this really deep way with the object that they're producing and in doing that, to really come to know that object, perhaps it's, it's um, you know, a, a, a painting of a flower, a painting of a person, and that in doing that, you, you can actually take that view to other human beings and broaden your understanding of those human beings. So he says, okay, think about the way in which you relate to nature. Think about something that you think is beautiful, you know, a beautiful flower, you know, a, go a gorgeous sunset. And he says that you yourself are there in that work of nature, that man himself is there. So in, in your appreciation of this beauty, you, you yourself are there. The reality of man is in that, um, that beautiful thing. And what he means by that is, he says, if, when, when you notice the, the power of nature and the, the fierceness and the, or the great beauty of nature, that, that we are astounded and overwhelmed by it. And we see something really beautiful. And then he says, the next thing that happens is that that feeling of delight and beauty is projected out onto nature. So we say, you know, well, you know, we get this wonderful um, feeling projected back, and we say, isn't isn't this marvelous? Isn't this fantastic and astounding? And then he said, and that ref reflects back to us. And one of, one of his points is that that actually challenges us to see that beauty within ourselves. And he says that we get heroic feelings when we're looking at a beautiful sunset or something something really marvellous. And he said that, that's part of what he thinks are the possibilities in taking this attitude, this artistic attitude, to other human beings, not just to, to learn from this, that, that art does have this potential to challenge us and make us feel quite heroic as though, as though the mystery and the beauty, the secrets of art are actually, and he talks about the secrets of art, and I thought, what, what does he mean, secrets of art? And what he means is that if you take this attitude, you reveal the secrets of your true being to yourself. You recognise yourself as a creature of God. You recognise the beauty of nature. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, yes, but... but um, not all um, um, art 
is beautiful, as I mentioned to you, some of it's disgusting, and people disagree about what's beautiful and what's not beautiful. And as soon as I thought that, and I read on a bit further, that of course he's already thought of that, and, and his, his response was, that, that's right, not, not everything is beautiful, not, and not every um, a piece of art that we look at leads to these kinds of, this kind of engagement, challenges us or delights us, makes us think about the reality of our being, makes us wonder why we are here, makes us appreciate the beauty of, of the universe. Not every piece of art has the possibility, has, does that for us. His argument is that it, no, it doesn't, but it has the potential. So if, if we can see the potential in art to do that, then we broaden our, uh, the possibilities for relating to the world, relating to nature, relating to works of art, and relating to other human beings. And he thinks that's why art is a virtue. He says that art, art is a practical virtue of the intellect. He says you, you've got to actually put reason and um, intelligence into your appreciation of art. He says that's why there's a difference between in pleasures that you know we, the, the pleasure of getting into a warm bath or you know eating a, you know, a chocolate ice cream on a hot day. That's just a simple pleasure. It just involves the senses. So he dismisses that as having any kind of aesthetic value. Things that have aesthetic value, that, that are going to fall into the realm of beauty for him, involve the senses, but they also involve the intellect. So your appreciation of beauty brings these two things together, that your, your sense, whether it's sight or hearing, and your intellect, and it's absolutely crucial to have these two coming together. If just the senses are involved, we're not in the realm of the ascetic. Then he goes on to say that God's appreciation of beauty is, of course, entirely different to ours, and, I, and I, I'd like to move on to that. But just before I do, I just want to recap on the view that he has that when we truly see the beauty in nature or in a work of art, that what we're doing is, on his view, speaking to our own souls. He says, the slow clouds moving in the sky or the immensity of the sea speak endlessly and inexhaustibly to man of the human soul. So it's his view that you can't actually engage in art in this deep way, you can't bring this deep appreciation without actually coming to um, an interaction with your own soul. That what you're, what you're going to find is an understanding of yourself and your relationship to your creator. So for him, art is prompting us to a sense of wonder, prompting us to look for meaning and value in life. 
and and that's it, that's its great value. When you listen to a piece of music or you look at a beautiful painting, there's a certain pleasure there. But his view is that if you apply your intellect as well as the pleasure that that your senses give you, that you begin to find meaning, that that in, in this wonder you begin to find meaning. There's a delight in it, he says. So when he talks about beauty, he says, beauty consists of intuitive knowledge, so it, it's, it's involving reason and the intellect, and delight. Beauty makes us delighted in the very act of knowing, a delight that overflows from the thing into us. So we look at, we look at the sea, and its beauty, the delight that we see in it, overflows into us and opens up this new way of, of looking at the self. The emphasis on intelligence and on reason is, is really interesting because he says, well, look, beauty actually has three elements, and one is, is um, that integrity, um, appreciating via your intellect the fullness of being, so that, that appreciation of the wonder of something really um, magnificent, proportion and, and consonance, so things are ordered, so beauty has something to do with that, so integrity, also order, and what he calls radiance. And those three elements, he says, come together in, in beauty, and radiance is the most important because it, it's <coughs> radiance is the notion of, of light that actually gives us the clarity with which to see this kind of splendour underlying beautiful things or the, sp- the splendour that might be um, inherent in, in a work of art. So for, for him, the intellect is absolutely crucial. But he says, for us, it's very difficult to appreciate that beauty. For God... Everything has beauty. Everything is beautiful. But for us, we don't have the capacity to appreciate that beauty. And it has partly to do with the fact that we are sensual beings. We are are physical, sensual beings. We have senses. God does not have senses and therefore is operating at the intellectual level. And Maritain says, as I've mentioned to you before, for us the appreciation of beauty is bringing the senses and the intellect together. For God there's no need of the senses. So God's intellect allows him to appreciate the beauty in everything. But we can't do that. As finite creatures, that's not not possible. So what we, what we do is participate in that notion of beauty. Beauty is a transcendental, like goodness and truth. And so it belongs to God. It's an attribute of God. We can't appreciate beauty in the way that God can because we're not pure intellect. We're sensual beings. And when you put the senses together with with 
the intellect and with reason, the senses sometimes make mistakes. So we can only be seen as, as participating in this process rather than appreciating the beauty in everything as God does. So we take it on faith that there is beauty in everything, that, that God sees beauty in absolutely everything, even what we find might be the most ugly of things. And we can't understand that because we don't have that capacity. We're not freed from, from the senses and we don't have that intellectual ability. I was reading um, a couple of days ago from the, the Vatican Information Service what um, the, the perfect book about on Christianity and faith. And as I read it, I saw a connection. He, he was talking about um, St. Thomas Aquinas and his contribution to um, bringing faith and reason together in um, the Catholic tradition. And his, his argument was that, that Thomas succeeded in, in doing this, in, in demonstrating a natural harmony between faith and reason. I'll read you what he said. Thomas Aquinas at St. Albert, the great school, carried out a task of fundamental importance in the history of theology as well as for, the his, for history and culture. He studied Aristotle and his interpreters in depth. He commented on Aristotle's works discerning what was valid in it and what was doubtful or refutable, demonstrating its consonance with the facts of Christian revelation, using Aristotelian thought with great breadth and intelligence, presenting the theological writings he composed. In short, Aquinas demonstrated a natural harmony between reason and Christian faith. But he then went on to say that at the end of his life, and Thomas confessed to his friend, Reginald of Piperno, that after a divine revelation, he considered all his work so much straw, and he wrote nothing afterwards, not a thing. And Pope Benedict says this, it's a mysterious episode that helps us understand not only Thomas's personal humility, but also the fact that all that we are able to think and say about the faith, as elevated and pure as it may be, is infinitely surpassed by the greatness and beauty of God, who will reveal himself to us in the fullness of paradise. And I was, I was writing this at the time that I read that, and I thought, yes, th this for me captures part of, of what Maritain is trying to say. He's, he's trying to say we can't understand the fullness of beauty in the way, of course, that God can. It's simply a mystery to us. But we can understand in principle that a being that is completely intellect is going to be able to see and appreciate the beauty in everything, the goodness in everything, when we can't. And we, we simply accept that. Beauty has the advantage amongst the, the transcendentals of, of uniting them all, partly by virtue of 
Maritain says, the light that it shines on the transcendentals. So the information that it gives us about the, the splendid forms of nature and the splendid forms of man's own creative work. St. Augustine is a little bit different when he comes to look at beauty. He says that really beauty is an aspect of divine revelation. So beauty is really an idea that we um, are, are given by God. Augustine takes quite a different view because he says, no, beauty is an experience. It involves you combining your senses and, and your intellect coming to an appreciation of beauty. He recognises that you know, the existence of all things and the beauty in all things derives from divine beauty. But where for, for St Thomas, we're involved in this process. The other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is what he, what he um, says when he's talking about actual works of art that we might um, think of as beautiful or ugly. So he says, you know, we, we human beings make this, dis, make this um, distinction between things which are beautiful and things which are ugly. And as I mentioned, that's not going to make any sense for God because a pure spirit isn't going to have any, in a sense, the idea of, of uh, sensual appreciation isn't going to make any sense for a pure spirit. So for God, there is no category of but Maritain is saying when we look at something and decide that it's ugly, he's saying think twice about things. Think, think about the possibility that what you're, what you're um, categorizing as ugly may have values that you don't recognize. So his statement that you should look into the eyes of others as you would look into, into at a beautiful work of art is connected here because he's saying if you look into the eyes of another human being whom perhaps you judge to be unattractive or um, stupid or in some way unappealing, if you take this attitude that in fact in looking at another human being as a work of art and you might draw an analogy here between art and, and people if you take that view then you're much more likely to have the splendours that Maritain is talking about here the splendours of our relationship with God the, the splendours of our um, humanity revealed to us, you're much more likely to look, to be able to look into your soul to recognize your relationship with God and with others. So for him, in confronting works of art, we have an opportunity to confront ourselves. And he thinks that's, that's absolutely crucial. And he takes um, a quotation from um, Baudelaire, which I 
I think it's really lovely that from the poet, this, and Baudelaire says this about beauty, beauty makes us consider the world and its pageants as a glimpse of a correspondence with heaven. It is at once by poetry and through poetry, by music and through music, that the soul divines what splendours shine behind the tomb. And when an exquisite poem brings tears to the eyes, such tears are not the sign of an excess of joy. They are rather witness to an irritated melancholy, an exigency of nerves, a nature exiled in the imperfect, which would possess immediately on this very earth a paradise revealed. So it's the same as when you look at something really beautiful and it brings to you, or you hear absolutely beautiful piece of of music, these are not really tears of an excess of joy. And you might actually relate to that. I, can, I, I could relate to this very well, of, of, of tears coming to my eyes and thinking, that's so beautiful, but not actually feeling, feeling joyous about it. And, and he explains it very well. He says, yes, it's not about joy. What it is about is a recognition of a, that really what confronts us eventually is paradise. But we're, we're a bit irritated and melancholy and a bit nervous because at the moment we're in an imperfect realm and that perfect realm is something that, that awaits us. So I, I liked that very much. I thought that um, he expressed it very, very well. Maritain and Plato and Plotinus and Augustine are arguing that beauty is an ultimate value. Why do you think, you know, they're saying that it belongs and it's one of the transcendentals, in fact, it unifies the transcendentals as far as Maritain is concerned, so it unifies um, truth and goodness with itself. Why do you think that they're arguing that beauty is an ultimate value? It's because it's associated with the idea of perfection and with God as perfection. For our, our, you know, modern philosophers who are writing about beauty, they don't, they don't call it an ultimate value. They say that perceptions of beauty are relative to the people who are making those perceptions. Maritain can see that. He says, yes, well, that might be, that might be true. You know, there, there might be relative judgments about the beauty of, of these artificial flowers. But he says that's at the superficial level of beauty when humans are just using their, their, um, their senses and the position from which they're judging and the degree of intellect that they can bring to it, to that appreciation. He's saying underlying that at that, the fundamental level is this notion of beauty as perfection, as associated with God, as something entirely ultimate. And so if you have that notion of perfection, then beauty is an ultimate value, but it's one that's only truly appreciated by God. It's, it's, it's a beauty, of, it's an attribute of God. 
And I, I, did, I wanted to say one other thing to you, which is something that, um, that Dante said, said when he was talking about um, beauty and, and art, he says that, um, that art itself, and he's got this deep fundamental notion of art, not just you know, the production of, of, of some um, human artefact, catches hold in the created world of the secret workings of nature in order to produce its own work, a new creature, so a, a composition or a poem. The consequence is that art continues in its own way the labour of divine creation. It is therefore true to say, with, with Dante, that our human art is, as it were, the grandchild of God. So the, the, the view is there that, in a way, that when we're engaged in art in this deep way, we're actually engaged in the work of divine creation, since we're recognising our, our place in the world. And the, the last thing that I was going to say to you, and this is just really a bit of an aside, is that at, at that last, um, uh, the last paragraph of um, Pope Benedict's piece in the Vatican Information Service this week, he talked a little bit about the friendship between um, Reginald of Paterno and St Thomas, and he said that okay, what they had, they had a very deep friendship, and so you know, Thomas felt free to tell him that really he. You know, he'd, he'd had a divine revelation and he was never going to write anything again because everything that he'd said was rubbish um, because the divine revelation actually uh, and, and everything that he said wasn't rubbish of course but once he had been open to the depth of the mystery underlying um, his conclusions he could no longer write and Pope Benedict said this that Reginald and Thomas had a fraternal and sincere friendship characterised by great trust and reliance. This is a characteristic of the saints. They cultivate friendship because it is one of the most noble manifestations of the human heart and holds something of the divine within it. And the reason that I, I draw, drawing or I'm drawing attention to that and coming to a close at this point is that I think there's an interesting um, analogy between friendship and art. That, that when you engage in any kind of artistic activity, you have to do it with a kind of indirection. You, you can't um, aim to make a friend of someone. And in, in fact, if I you know, go, go up to Robert and say, Robert, I'm going to be your friend. Robert will probably, I really want to make you my friend. I mean, he'll probably make his excuses and leave very quickly. <laughs> because that's not what friendship's about. When you, to, if you've got a good friendship going or you develop one, it's something that, that, that happens um, while you're engaging in activities together. So, you know, you might be... Um, um, you know, playing sport together, going to um, you know, church together, working together, and a friendship develops. But you can't aim to create the friendship. It may or may not happen. All you can do is engage with a good heart in activities together, and a friendship may happen. Art is similar. An artist can't, or a musician can't, decide to write a masterpiece. 
or you know, a, 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 a hit. All the artist can do is engage with a good heart, with, as well as he or she can, in the creation, in the creative process, and a masterpiece may come out, but it's an indirect kind of enterprise, and it's indirect because you have to be engaged in it for its own sake. There's no guarantee there. And I think that's a nice analogy for us, that, that we, we engage with one, just as, as one engages in art, we engage with one another. And I'm hoping to say this to my legal students, that, that there's an artistic element to your engagement with the other. And that will, you will only get the benefits of that if you engage in the relationship for its own sake, not for anything that you're going to get out of it, but for its own sake, because there's some intrinsic worth here. And um, I think that's probably all I was going to say about you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Sandra Lynch. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.